This is an ABC podcast. This is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Welcome to the Country Hour, Warwick Long with you on location today inside a room that's surrounded by big guns. We're at the Moama RSL, also at the front though are fake cows and it's the cows that are the focus of today because we're talking about the third largest rural industry in Australia. We're talking about the group that handles the research development and marketing for that industry. It's paid for by grower levy payers and it has a lot of work to do. The industry has been getting smaller. It is at a time when farmers have been getting paid more and uh, imports are starting to come into the country at a greater rate. So there's a lot to discuss when we have a look at dairy and we're going to do just that over the next hour or so together. We're at the Dairy Australia uh, AGM, Annual General Meeting here in Moama at the RSL. It should be a great day. I hope you can join us to talk through all of that. Before we get to dairy, though, we better get through rural news with Fiona Broom today. Good afternoon, Fiona. Good afternoon. Was making rural news today. Environment authorities in South Australia are investigating reports feral pigs are being moved from New South Wales and Victoria to the state's southeast. The Invasive Species Council warns it's something that needs to be dealt with quickly as fast-growing mobs are a key threat to native species and lambs and put pressure on grazing. Limestone Coast Landscape Board Operations Manager Mike Stevens says the motivation hasn't been established, but the pigs could have a major impact. We've had several reports from people in the community that some of the pigs may have eventuated from New South Wales. So... At the moment, uh, we don't have any specific evidence and we're still encouraging anyone with evidence or information to, to contact the Landscape Board to help us continue with the investigations. But, but at the moment, yeah, po- possibly uh, deliberate releases of animals from New South Wales is some of the preliminary information that we've been told. What's motivating this movement, I guess? Look, we're still uncertain why someone would want to do this. Um, feral pigs have a significant multi-million dollar impact to the economy, the environment, and pose a significant biosecurity threat to our region as well. So, look, whether those animals are to establish a, a population for uh, hunting or for personal use and they've got a way on people, we're, we're uncertain exactly It's getting towards the pointy end of the grain season in Tasmania and for the past seven seasons, a project at Hagley has been researching crops with the aim of tripling wheat yields in the state. Head of research Nick Poole says while some varieties have been successful, others have fallen to disease. Last year in 2022, our spring-sown barley exceeded all of our expectations with over 12 tonne a hectare of irrigated spring-sown barley. Some of the varieties that were favourites early on have developed disease resistance. They had good resistance to disease, but they've become more susceptible. And this is primarily due to what we call exotic pathotypes. So perhaps either on something or someone's clothing came into the eastern states of Australia and they brought some stripe rust from a different part of the world. And that stripe rust has played havoc over these last two years with a number of the varieties that we had previously identified as being high yielding. They've gone from being low input to being extremely high input. 
to WA where a mothballed small stock abattoir just on the edge of Geraldton could be up and running again as early as next year. Formerly known as Geraldton Meat Exports or GME, the abattoir hasn't been operating since 2018. It sold earlier this year to Syed Ghazali from Al-Q Meats. He sees potential in exporting frozen and chilled sheep meat to markets he's established in Singapore, Brunei and the Middle East. And he says he has big plans for the future. The latest will be 14th of February. I want it to be as early as possible, like end of January. So that is my timeline. I, I hope I can make it. Where will you be sourcing the stock from? We talked to one local agent here uh, to supply us at least. We want to start at 1000 per day. And they said that this should be no problem. That's good news. But overall, we want to increase it um, by next year will be about 1005 and all the way to the max 2005. So uh, that is the first uh, source using an agent, so less headache. But of course, in future, I would like to have my own uh, ship station. Are you drinking less alcohol than you used to? Well, drinking habits worldwide have had a major shift in recent years, and that's had big implications for those producing wine and spirits. Felicity Carter is an Australian wine journalist working across Europe from her base in Germany. She's in Australia to deliver a keynote address on global wine trends at this week's Wine Industry Impact Conference in Adelaide. The biggest changes uh, are in two areas. One is that uh, people are changing the way that they drink. They're moving out of silos. So people used to be wine drinkers or beer drinkers and they'd move a little bit into other categories. But what's happening is a complete collapse of categories. So people uh, are now um, drinking soft drinks at dinner or drinking a lot more uh, no and low alcohol than they did in the past. But I think the most significant change that's happened in wine has happened very, very rapidly. And it's the changing guidelines around alcohol that the World Health Organization has come out with. So in the last couple of years, um, the the guidelines have changed in Europe and in Canada and particularly in Ireland. um, And they've said that there's no safe level of alcohol. Um, And this is having an enormous impact. So, So people are moderating their drinking. And that's Rural News Today was... Thanks very much for that, Fiona. Fiona Broom there with Rural News for you today. Work along with you live at the Dairy Australia AGM. Well, actually, the important bit kicks off in about an hour's time, which means we get to have some of the bigwigs here on the program to talk to you today, which is great. Third largest industry, 8.1 billion litres of milk being produced, 6 billion at the farm gate. There's some of the stats inside the annual report uh, for Dairy Australia today. Managing Director of Dairy Australia, David Nation, can join you to talk through some of those numbers and more really the the state of the organisation and the industry. David Nation, welcome to the Country Out. Great to be here. Uh, How is dairy going in Australia right now? I've realised that is a big and open-ended question, but I feel like that's where we need to start, right? I think it's a really good question because people people for years have asked where dairy is at because dairy had had a really rough first 20 years since DREG. But what we're, show, what we're seeing in fat levels of farm profitability is the last three years have been really strong and the, and the vast majority of pro- farmers have made a really good profit. We set a benchmark of $1.50 EBIT per kilo milk solids. If, if farmers reach that level, then we really think farmers are in a strong position to reinvest in their business. And, and the vast majority of farmers are now reaching that level of profitability. So profitable farmers in the dairy industry, that is a benchmark being hit at the moment for Dairy Australia. Absolutely. For Dairy Australia and the dairy industry in general, uh, you know, that really lifts the spirits of the dairy industry. The industry is still contracting, though. What's happening there? Well, I think there's always forces at play. Um, you know, people are having a chance to retire. 
Uh, a couple of years ago, beef was really strong and there was a lot of conversions to beef. But we are seeing this season, for example, that, you know, that, 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 that trend is turning and we're seeing level or even slight increase in milk production around the country. Really? So you think this might be the year things turn? Well, I think strong prices again this year and it, it's all about the season and it's all about setting up the herds for success. So we've had a run of good years. We had some confidence going to this season that price would be strong again. So I think a lot of farmers have set their herds up for success this year. So whilst you've been operating in this shrinking environment until now, and that, that would be good news for the industry to be turning around, but until now, what has that meant? Because dairy farmers are paying levies on the milk produced. There's less milk being produced. What did it mean for, for you and the organisation that you're running? This is the challenge for Dairy Australia because we have a volume-based levy and milk volume drops, our levy drops. Uh, the government matches the levy, so it has a double whammy effect because less, levy, less levy means less government matching. And then inflation has taken off and cost of doing business, cost of doing research has taken off. So mm-hmm. that, that has squeezed Dairy Australia as an organisation. And, and so your research has been getting more expensive to do with inflationary pressures whilst you've had less money to do it with. Yes. Yeah. Has that meant... A change to either your staffing or how you're operating Dairy Australia? Well, one of the other things that we deliberately said we would do a year ago is we would bounce out of COVID and really increase our level of delivery services in the regions because we knew it had two years of reduced level. You know, we weren't able to deliver as we normally would. So we planned to run a deficit budget. We, we, Mm. We planned ahead. But the deficit budget still has been really challenging for us, even with you know, even running a deficit, to be able to run the sort of services we want to. And you've even shrunk the amount of office space you're using in Melbourne, etc. Right? We yeah. have, we have, and we're planning for the future. I mean, it's really clear how people work these days. You know, vast majority of businesses are not in the office five days a week. You know, for us, it's a it's a hybrid work environment where people are in the office you know, two to three days a week and they work in the regions and they work all around the country and they work from home. Has that saved you and farmers money? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly, there's always a cost in downsizing, but from now on having a smaller footprint is a real saving to farmers. That's really interesting to me. Also, how you're spending your money is really interesting to me, looking at your report earlier. Around 80% of, of your levy money going to, to research, obviously far greater than, than marketing, around 6%. Why such a focus on, on research in the industry for, for your organisation? I think we've always done it that way. And our, we, you know, one of the core things we say to farmers is contributing a levy the, the leverage you get from investing that in R&D and getting it matched by the government, that is such a core cool proposition for farmers. So by keeping the, the amount of levy we invest in R&D that high, we get really high levels of matching, really high levels of leverage, and we can do that much more for farmers. Hmm. Oh, so, so that's really interesting to me. And yet you still do have marketing programs. Like Jonathan Brown turns up every now and then, the ex-football player, um, plugging dairy as well. Um, do you need, even at a time when your costs and the money coming into the build, uh, building is going down, do you need to make sure you keep things like um, programs telling people to drink milk and eat dairy going? Yeah, we do. And one of our challenges is how to right-size that. So we, we have, over the last few years, reduced our investment in marketing, yep. in real, in, particularly in real terms. Yep. And we've been more and more focused on where and how we do marketing. Like we are, we've now found a really good strategy where we focus on consumer trust and we look at the audience where we think we can build trust and we focus on you know, programs and podcasts and media that really speak to them. And we see a, you know, a huge return in terms of the uptick in consumer trust for dairy by being really targeted in where we promote. So you're going to people that already almost feel 
sort of comfortable with dairy in the industry and, and its values and you're trying to add to that and get them to have uh, more? Is that No, it's, it's different to that. Our focus is on a group we call change makers. Okay. People that really think about what and why they consume things and, and just importantly, they love telling others what and why they consume things. And so they're, they're making active decisions themselves and they're actively trying to influence other people. Will there come a time where you have to spend more money there in terms of marketing than, uh, and beef up that budget at the expense of, say, research? I, I think we've now... We're now at a point where it's challenging to reduce the budget in marketing anymore and we know it works and we really just want to keep focusing on what we know works. And so that, look, over time, everything will get more expensive. We're really happy with where we're at with levels of consumer trust. So if we can just keep it at that sort of level and have a really good, you know, solid campaign, know what we're doing, get the results for it, I've recently been overseas comparing what we do with other countries and we're at much higher levels of trust than, for example, North Americans or Europeans. So I mean, that's absolute credit to the team and the wider dairy industry and how dairy farmers speak up for themselves. So um, our challenge is to keep it that way. And so in terms of research then, what are your big priorities in, in research at the moment for dairy farmers and the industry? In the last 12 months, one of the big things we've done is uh, locked in uh, where we're investing in feed-based research both um, you know, pasture growing forage as well as crops and harvesting forage and we've now locked in a really neat national program spanning from Tasmania to Queensland. Our biggest programs continue to be in Victoria but we've, we've now really locked in a, a really solid five-year agenda for feed-based research. So like growing high quality as cheap as possible feed for cows and that's the way you're going to get cheap milk, right? Yeah, Is that so, the focus so a, absolutely. So growing, growing more feed testing the boundaries of what we, what feed we can grow if we have less access to fertilisers and nutrients, uh, looking at what our options are in warmer climates and farming successfully in the subtropics, um, looking at where technology plays. We've done some really neat work on remote measurement of pasture. We're now really looking to remote management of nutrients and soils and seeing how we can make more proactive decisions about what to do when in terms of thinking about five or t- ten years ahead and if that sort of technology plays out it will change the way you can manage pastures. So there's some really far-reaching um, thinking about uh, uh, growing more grass with less nutrients, with less water, and, and, and also with a climate overlay to say, well, you know, on, in, how can we do this? Because there's a lot of government support for a climate overlay in research. So um, how can we do this with climate adaptation front of mind? A couple of quick texts from our audience to, to put to you. I'd love your responses to, to this. Um, Ted says we need to see five good years of good stable prices and dairy will turn around. It's too hard of a job not to be paid well. I suppose that goes to show what you're talking about, that trend that you're seeing now with milk production. Would you agree? I agree completely with Ted. And, uh, and I think one of the things we're seeing now with the, the, the way pricing works and locking in pricing in June each year is this is now, for many parts of Australia, the fourth year of good prices. So another good year, Ted, and we're at five years. <laughs> and Farmer Joe says, and, and given we're talking about research priorities, he says, when is Dairy Australia going to roll out or deliver real programs that help farmers deal with climate change and decreasing our carbon footprint, not greenwashing with programs that are irrelevant? That's Farmer Joe's comments, not mine. But in terms of... Um, greenhouse gas emissions and carbon neutrality either in the dairy industry is that a big focus for your research right now very much so and so uh, let's unpack that for a sec so we're really interested in a rock solid carbon calculation that everyone can stand behind and there's no greenwashing and we call that the australian dairy carbon calculator we're really interested then in saying once you've got your number what can you do about it 
And there's actually things you can do just by comparing yourself to your neighbour. So, for example, there's some neighbours with similar farm systems that have 25% difference in carbon footprint. So just thinking about what that farmer does that you don't do can be a, can be a way of reducing in real practical terms. We're very much investing in understanding where feed fits, where genetics fits. And then the other thing that is coming as, as a preview is we've done a lot of work with an online support call to all the, called the Farm Enviro Tracker. We just won an international award with it, Warwick, and we're looking forward to just the final design and rolling it out, and that's a real sort of practical support tool for farmers to say, what can I do different that reduces footprint? That's going to be really interesting to follow through. I'll just finish with this, David Nation. Thank you for spending so much time with us when you're about to go make a speech yourself. But um, how important is it to you? Obviously, Dairy Australia is not everything to the Australian dairy industry, but a lot of your tenure has been difficulty in the industry, in a shrinking industry. Now you're on the cusp of growth. Is it important to you to be here at a time when things have turned around? I've, I've really valued my time in the role and the things we've been able to do, even though you know we've been disrupted in our services and challenged by you know, times of industry shrinking. Uh, for me, I'm about to show a graph that shows how fertility has turned around. And fertility is my background and it's been a 20-year thing. We're celebrating 20 years you know, it has taken 20 years to turn it around and that gives me enormous pleasure to think that a whole lot of people have lent into this problem, me being one of them and part of it, and look what we've achieved for the industry. That gives me so much satisfaction. 20 years of Dairy Australia and there's a 20-year curve on, on research, which is great. David Nation, thanks for joining us. Great, brilliant, thank you. Uh, Managing Director of Dairy Australia, i get you to pass the microphone over because that is the Australian industry, that is the research in the Australian industry and how levy payer money is being spent by Dairy Australia. I wanted to look a little bit about how the dairy industry as a whole is sitting at the moment. So Charlie McAlone, our General Manager of Trade and Industry Strategy at Dairy Australia, is with me to do just that. Um, what's the world of dairy looking at at the moment, Charlie? It's It's been an interesting sort of ride for the last few years post-COVID. Yeah, absolutely, Warwick, and good to be with you. Um, yeah, it has been a roller coaster ride when it comes to the international dairy uh, markets. And particularly, I mean, a lot of that has really rotated around China. And obviously the growth we've seen over a 20-year period of the growth of Chinese domestic demand for dairy. So coming out of the back of COVID, we have seen a bit of a transition with, with China as they've sort of eased some of their, their consumption growth. They've built up some of their, their domestic stockpiles and that's really had reverberations around the global, uh, the global industry and, uh, and, and really seen commodity prices come off somewhat in the last 12 months or so. So... That creates some challenges, um, you know, globally. But you know, as as David mentioned earlier, domestically we've seen pretty strong market conditions, a lot of strong demand, and, and a lot of competition for Australian milk. Well, Australia once historically built around export markets, right? There's been a lot of talk over the last few years about how Australian dairy, as it shrank, became more of a domestic industry. But looking at the figures, we're still exporting a bit, aren't we? Absolutely. Um, and it's often forgotten. We are still the fifth largest dairy exporter in the world. We export about $3.7 billion worth of Australian dairy products every year. We're a global powerhouse when it comes to dairy exporting, and we're very well respected in markets around the world. We've just held our Kangaroo Kai annual Kangaroo Kai seminar in Japan, where we've got a really strong relationships and engagement from the Japanese industry that we've built over a 25-year period. It, it's cheddar, yeah, Japanese 
Pre- predominantly cheddar, yeah. Some some uh, some cream cheese, cheddar, a bit of um, a bit of powders as well. But it's it's obviously been a strong mainstay of Australian dairy exports for many years. Uh, will there be a chance? We just heard maybe milk production might be turning around. Do you see that as an opportunity for Australian exporters, or because we're paying so much at the farm gate, does that limit what we can export? Listen, it's all it's it's a it's a. It is an intricate network and, and decisions need to be made by individual companies and all have different ambitions in terms of what what domestic footprint, what international footprint, what markets they're chasing, what types of products that they're making, whether they're making cheddar or they're making liquid milk or they're making powders. These decisions are all playing out. Um, in saying that, absolutely increased production does give us more op- options from the from the processor perspective um, you know in terms of where we put that Australian dairy which which I would reinforce is in hot demand and that's the export side of things imports is a big story on Australian sure. supermarket shelves at the moment too I've noticed even the cheap butter in a supermarket now now there's an Australian cheap butter yeah. and there's a cheaper alternative that's often from New Zealand but can sometimes be from other countries as well huge increase in imports of dairies on our shelves absolutely we, we have to remember that Australia Australian consumers are some of the the largest dairy consumers in the world. Our per capita consumption is up around 300 kilos per capita per year when you convert it into milk equivalent. 90 litres of milk per year, 15 kilos of cheese per year. We love our dairy uh, and that makes us an attractive market, not just for our own dairy farmers and processors but also for the importers too. So clearly in times where we have lost some of our production, 5% reduction last year, um, that, so, that creates opportunities for importers. So my question about that, huge increases in, in butter, I think something like the, the stat I was just reading in your report was like 40% of Australian butter at the moment, of butter and in Australia is imported and a 44% increase of imported cheese over 10 years or something mm. like that. Um, with that in mind, does the industry in Australia or the process care that much about that if they're making money elsewhere or is it is it something to keep an eye on it's it's definitely something to keep an eye on but but i think we need to accept that we are a trading industry mm. and we export you know so much we export that 3.7 billion dollars but with that means that we are also exposed on the international market from the import side too so the reality is that our processors and exporters, they're chasing the highest value markets. Sometimes that's the domestic market, sometimes that's in Japan, sometimes that's in China. It's an intricate web. We need to accept that we're part of both sides of that equation. And just to comment on this, uh, $6.1 billion of farm gate production mm. through the Australian dairy industry in the, in the last season. Um, when you're looking at the spreadsheet of how much farmers have been making, what do the last few years look like compared to the rest? And just re- reinforcing what Dave said earlier, um, you know, we've seen some really strong profitability on farm and with our Dairy Farm Monitor project numbers, that's obviously some of the highest numbers in Victoria we've seen for 17 years. So so, so that's a really positive story. Can it let's, continue? Let's hope it continues. It can continue, and with the demand for Australian dairy, I'm sure it will. Uh, Charles McAlone, thank you very much for joining us on the program again. Thanks, Warwick. General Manager of Trade and Industry Strategy at Dairy Australia, speaking to you there. We'll be back with farmers sitting here on the Country Hour uh, desk soon to talk about how they're going this year, and we'll get the, the farm gate level. But let's continue our coverage of what we've been speaking about all this week, and that is agriculture and climate change with this year's Global Climate Summit. Uh, to launch in the UAE on Thursday. Agriculture will be 
under the microscope like never before. Around 17% of Australia's greenhouse gases come from agriculture and that share is set to grow as other high-emitting industries decarbonise. Over the next few weeks, world leaders will be discussing how countries can redu- reduce the environmental impact of food production. And it's become a talking point on this program this week as we look at agriculture and emissions from a number of different ways in the lead-up to COP28, as Fiona Broom reports. From the initial flood a month ago, we think that there's been at least 10,000 cattle lost. Pasture paddocks and stubble paddocks were all burned out. About six kilometres from the river, I mean, we're not on the riverbank. Here we are in water again. We sort of estimate the area impacted by the weather we've seen would probably account for around 20 million tonnes. Increasingly extreme weather is disrupting global food security. While total agricultural output has increased in the past 50 years, climate change is slowing this growth worldwide. That's according to the IPCC, the world's peak climate science advisory panel. While agriculture is deeply affected by climate change, it's also a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions. But is it possible to cut emissions from agriculture? Farmers say they're looking to technology to help. Absolutely, technology is a big part of the solution and a lot of farmers are at the leading edge of new technology. It's always been the way Australian agriculture is incredibly innovative. That's Natalie Collard from Farmers for Climate Action. She says Australia's food and fibre producers producers are keen to find new ways to reduce agricultural emissions, working with researchers like Professor Richard Eckard from the University of Melbourne. We're coming up with innovative solutions. We've got a plan in front of government basically to drop 50% of the emissions out of the cropping industries overnight if they really wanted to achieve that. Uh, It just requires a partnership with the fertiliser industry to coat all our fertiliser. That's beyond research. That's something that can happen tomorrow if we, if there was a political will to make it happen. On the other hand, we're doing lots of research on livestock methane, supplements we can feed now, new legume technologies, breeding animals for lower methane. While farmers say they're committed to cutting their emissions, they also say there's no silver bullet when it comes to areas of food production like methane emissions from livestock. Here's National Farmers Federation President David Johinke. Food is one of the most essential things to life. We want to make sure that we can still produce food in a sustainable way, but we're not going to cut our arms off in doing so. There are a lot of technologies and techniques out there that have been adopted already, and we want to have recognition for that. We also want to acknowledge that there is a limited amount that we can do. I always believe if we talk about net zero or not expelling methane, these these things are near impossible when we have animals have ruminants. We, We can't get away from that fact, and We can reduce our impact, but we can never really get down to that zero position. Dr Jared Greenville from Australia's federal agriculture research body, ABARES, says technology is one option for decarbonising food production, but agrees there's only so far it can go. It's quite likely that we won't ever be producing cattle which don't produce any methane. We might have good technologies that can help lower that amount, but at this stage with our technology doesn't seem to be the case. The IPCC has said the world needs to cut back meat and dairy production to reduce emissions. So should Australia change what it eats and exports? Tammy Jonas is a pig farmer and butcher. She's also the president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, which wants to see changes to industrial food systems. 
animals are a really healthy part of an ecosystem when there aren't too many of them being produced for too high a consumption load. One of our farms' uh, mottos is, is follows the slow meat mantra of eat better meat less. And we know that places like Australia and America and the UK, we eat you know, huge amounts of meat beyond what most of the world actually eats. So if we brought the protein consumption from livestock back into balance with the ecosystem's capacity to support those animals, then we think that's the right amount. And that's how much meat I guess we try to produce is something that's in balance with our ecosystem and in balance with our population's need for healthy and nutritious meat in their diets. Professor Richard Eckard says the scientific possibilities for sustainable agriculture haven't yet been exhausted. I'm a big believer in technology. Before we sort of go down the track of sort of radical change to diets, I, I believe we, we haven't really given technology its full extent. The, the ruin of an animal took 50 million years to evolve to a steady state. And we decided 20 years ago this was a problem. We needed to change it. And we've been throwing three-year drip funding research projects at it. Uh, we, we haven't seriously given it the research that it deserves to reverse 50 million years of evolution. If in 10 years' time of giving it you know, 10 years of concentrated funding, we still can't eliminate the methane from, say, the extensive cattle industry, well, then... We have to think again, you know, does society accept that and accept that maybe biodiversity that they manage is uh, more important to us than the methane? Or do we change altogether? If you have a 50 million year old problem and you throw three year funding rotations at it, you, you're really not being serious about technology solutions. That's Professor Richard Eckhart ending that report from Fiona Broom all this week. ABC Rural is looking at how agriculture is affected by and contributes to climate change in the run-up to COP28's launch on Thursday. And obviously beyond, we'll keep an eye on that. Right now, though, let's find out what's making regional news headlines around Victoria this lunchtime. William Howard can do that for us. Good afternoon, William. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news, Goulburn Valley locals say the impacts of reinstating wide-scale water buybacks across the Murray-Darling Basin will be felt across the whole community. The federal government struck a deal with the Greens yesterday to overhaul the Murray-Darling Basin plan, which will pave the way for Commonwealth buybacks from farmers. A convoy of trucks and tractors took to the streets in Shepparton yesterday morning to protest against these plans. Nationals member for Eastern Victoria, Melina Bath, is calling on the state government to immediately improve punctuality on the Gippsland line and stand by an election promise to reduce mobile black spots for commuters across the state. In 2015, former Premier Daniel Andrews committed to install mobile reception repeaters on velocity carriages, but this never eventuated. PowerCore will build a new substation in a residential area in Ballarat East, yesterday announcing 203 York Street as the chosen site. The power company says it will offer financial compensation to nearly 20 neighbouring property owners, with work expected to begin before the end of the year. The president of the Rural Doctors Association has welcomed the Health Minister's review into how doctors are distributed across Australia. Raymond Lewandowski says the reclassification of regional centres as rural areas saw doctors trained overseas placed closer to metropolitan hubs. And Warwick, for more news at any time, listeners can head to abc.net.au forward slash news. Thank you very much for that, William. William Howard there with regional news headlines. I love this on the text. It's not the country hour anymore, was. It's the climate change hour. 
We've been talking dairy for half an hour, but we play one climate change story. And it looks like your ego's a little bit hurt there. Text again tomorrow because we're going to do it again. 0467 842 722. I have some dairy farmers here to talk to. We'll get to them in just a moment. Right now, though, let's find out what's happening weather-wise around our uh, state. Christy Johnson is the Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau. And we've got some flood watchers on the go. Christy, what can you tell us? Yeah, we do. Uh, So, look, we're expecting quite a lot of rainfall over the next day or two. Um, There's basically a low-press system that's deepening over southwestern New South Wales today, and that's going to move across right along the the northwest um, or the northern border of of the state and out into the Tasman Sea over the next sort of 48 hours. So that's giving us some thunderstorms, um, potentially with heavy rainfall and damaging winds up in the north, far northwest at the moment, which we do have a warning out for up around uh, the Mildura area. Um, And then we are expecting more widespread thunderstorm activity um, firstly this afternoon and then also tomorrow will probably be the wettest day as that low moves more across Victoria. And uh, we could see widespread falls of 50 to 100 millimetres and possibly even some locally heavier ones with with some severe thunderstorms. So uh, there is the potential for um, at least minor flooding on catchments right from across the east and the south, including uh, the Otways and um, and the southern parts of Gippsland uh, and out into the snowy and the, those east Gippsland catchments and then up into the upper Murray and Mittermitter as well. So um, a widespread area under flood watch. Uh, obviously, the areas that, that get flooding and, and how much flooding we get will depend on the exact location of, of the uh the heaviest rainfall, which will depend very much exactly on that track of the low, so it's a bit hard to say at this stage, but there is the potential for some pretty heavy rainfall, particularly tomorrow over the Otways um, and the Stresleckis and the southern parts of Gippsland there, uh, maybe up into the Borbore Plateau. Some of those areas are looking pretty wet tomorrow. Um, and then even as we go into Thursday, we've got potential for um, southeasterly winds to be streaming some pretty moist air into Gippsland just keeping the rainfall going through Gippsland on Thursday and to some extent maybe even into Friday. So, um, yeah, definitely the potential for some flooding on the cards at this stage, mostly looking like minor to isolated moderate, but we'll be watching the rainfall totals pretty uh, carefully over coming days. So, uh, Christy, I suppose in terms of the next 24 hours, what should we be looking at? Like, what are the, what are the main focus from the weather point of view? All right, so basically today, as I say, we've got thunderstorms already up in the northwest. They could extend across most of the north and the east today. Uh, this afternoon, some of the, um, particularly through the north and then also through the central ranges, the Gippsland ranges, uh, and maybe even into the Grampians or perhaps even um, the Yarra ranges and Dandenongs, could see some fairly slow-moving thunderstorms, so that does bring with it the risk of heavy rain, a heavy rainfall that could lead to flash flooding. So um, that's probably the main story today is just those showers and thunderstorms becoming more widespread across the state. It's quite warm. We've got temperatures getting up into the mid-20s through the north, looking at sort of topping out around 27 at places like Echuca, Shepston, Seymour. Uh, in the south, mostly into the low 20s, um, but yeah, just a, becoming more uh, unsettled as the day goes on uh, or that area of, of unsettled weather extending. Tomorrow, as I say, looking like the wettest day. Um, so widespread uh, rainfall totals of 10 to 30 millimetres, particularly through central and eastern parts, but obviously much higher 
where we, where we get thunderstorms or where we've got sort of some of that um, uplift over the ranges around, say, the Otways and the Sedlethes. The temperatures tomorrow looking reasonably similar to today, sort of into the low to mid-20s in the north and the high teens or low 20s in the south, maybe just slightly cooler. Um, it will be actually quite windy uh, tomorrow as well, particularly through the south. Uh, we'll see easterly winds picking up, wrapping around that low-pressure system, so quite a, a windy day through the south as well. Uh, on Thursday, the low will start to move away, so the rainfall mostly contracts in terms of any significant rainfall into Gippsland, although there could be some showers through other parts of the south and east. Um, we could keep that potential for some thunderstorms with heavy rainfall out in east Gippsland. On Thursday, temperatures once again in the high teens in the south and the low to mid-20s in the north. And then it's just a gradual easing trend. Friday, some showers continuing through, particularly through Gippsland, um, not too much elsewhere, elsewhere uh, not too much in the way of thunderstorm activity. And over the weekend, uh, we've got some showers just persisting into Gippsland as we keep the southeasterly flow on both Saturday and Sunday. Mm. But by the time we get to next week, we're back to probably mostly dry conditions uh, on Monday. And my lo one last question on behalf of Marty, who's in Swan Hill doing hail assessments on grain crops right now. He says, should I hold off in case there's more in this next event? Is there any hail expected in these storms? Uh, look, it's probably one of the lower risks. Um, where the, the heavy rain is the highest risk. Um, but there could be some hail, particularly in some of the bigger storms over the Mallee today. So, you know, up at Swan Hill, I guess it's not out of the question today. Um, as we move into tomorrow and then uh, later in the week, the, the risk will move away from the Mallee and it'll be more into the east anyway. But, but yeah, the uh, the rain and to some extent the winds are probably the higher risk than significant hail. Thanks, Christy. No problem. Thanks, Rick. Christy Johnson, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking you through the full weather. There's a lot of weather going on this week. If you want a personalised question to the Weather Bureau, you know what to do tomorrow. Send a text at about this time, 0467 842 722, if you want to send us a text. Uh, let's talk to some farmers now on the Country Hour. Dairy farmers, in fact, because we're live at Moama at the RSL. The big guns are out the front. They're also in here in front of me. There are a group of dairy farmers who are going to talk about how their seasons are looking, particularly in northern Victoria, southern New South Wales. Before we get there, though, Malcolm Holm is a dairy farmer in southern New South Wales, but also a spokesperson for the National Farmers Federation on water. And it's been a big week in water, Malcolm Holm. It looks like the Murray-Darling Basin legislation is set to go through Parliament in the next day or two. Uh, how did you feel when you heard the news yesterday the Greens had done a deal with the government? I'm pretty disappointed, Warwick. Um, it's, um, you know, we've been working hard with the government, the opposition and the crossbench. Uh, disappointed, but not surprised. Uh, Tanya Plibersek, I'm just getting word right now, it's due to stand up uh, for another press conference at one o'clock where it's, she's expected to say she has uh, support from a further crossbenchers which will give the government the numbers they need. So is the fight over this legislation and the, the extra water and the more buybacks for the Murray-Darling Basin plan, is that over for you now? Uh, absolutely not. Um, I mean, we're also talking with the crossbench, uh, continuing to talk to the minister's office, so, and um, um, and the coalition. So, um, whilst it's a pretty, uh, it's a piece of pretty nasty legislation, um, some reasonable tweaks to it 
can give us something that we can live with. It just depends whether the government wants to do that. So you're a dairy farmer in the Murray-Darling Basin in, in areas where there have been the protests, right? We've seen yep. more in this yep. part of the world than, say, South Australia or, or Queensland lately. Here has been a hotbed. What is so bad about this legislation in your eyes that leads you to protest or ring governments and try and lobby it? Yeah, and those protests were led by local communities, by local government. And, and if we saw the... Um, submissions into the Senate inquiry, every local government submission was against it. So whilst we had four uh, protests in a reasonably close area, it doesn't matter where you are in the basin, um, this is going to hurt you. This is going to hurt um, not only farmers. Why? Um, essentially a megalitre of water um, can be, particularly in the southern basin, can be mo- moved around. So if megalitres are brought out of the South Australia, that will impact the temporary water market in northern Victoria, southern New South Wales, the Murrumbidgee. So it's Golden. going to make water cost more? It's going to make water cost more. Uh, the food processes, the manufacturers, um, you know, it's going to make uh, getting their produce a little bit more tenuous. Um, it, it is just, as we saw in the, the other round, um, rural communities like Moree got belted. And so there is an argument, and I'll know that'll be someone will be furiously typing a text right now saying the government can't take water out of the system unless someone sells it to them. Um, and so these buybacks are voluntary, right? Like farmers will be selling, freely selling their water to the government. Why are you against that? There is already a, a very robust water market. Um, so the government's going to come in, distort that market. Um, and look, the government's going to offer 20 or 30% premium. So if you're wanting to sell water, well, no doubt you'll hang out for that premium. But what's going to happen is that that water comes out of production. So that means there's a bit less rice grown, there's a bit, bit less dairy, a few less stone fruit, um, and that just rolls on throughout the community. And that's why we had keep workers working, keep small communities vibrant at the rallies. I mean, these rallies weren't led by farmers. These rallies were led by local government and workers out of food processing plants. So the wider community might be more affected than the individual person leaving the farm? That's uh, correct, because the farmer will get their money and walk away. Mm. Uh, so so it's, it's going to be what's left behind. Existing irrigators paying more for temporary water and uh, you know less uh, produce going through those manufacturing plants. You're a dairy farmer as well, as I said in the introduction. I'm about to speak to a few more of your dairy farming colleagues. How are you going this year? Look, it's been um, a, a reasonable season. Um, you know, there's... Um, We've made a reasonable amount of silage and hay. You know, maize has gone in on time. Two months earlier than last year, Warwick. <laughs> a bit and, wet last uh, year. So, um, yeah, look, it, it's kicking, all, kicking along all right. Uh, like, we've still got um, some uh, a few headaches from the last few seasons of really wet weather and, and digesting all that through our, our, our cash flows and so forth. But, um, yeah, look, um, you know, milk price is good, but, you know, a lot of costs have risen as well, particularly around labour, um, and uh, fuel and, and those sorts of things. So, you know, margins uh, margins are reasonable, but still tidy, tight enough. <laughs> a couple of nodding heads around you, so I'll get you to pass the microphone on. Malcolm Holm, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Warwick. Malcolm Holm, he's a dairy farmer in southern New South Wales at Blighty. Oh, look, no one wants to grab the microphone first. Uh, people are going to be forced to. Uh, let's chat to a couple of dairy farmers about how it's going. People are starting to make their way in the room. The AGM's going to kick off in about 13 minutes' time. Lucky will be done. Uh, Rachel Napier is dairy farmer at Finley. Glenn Fox is from Kyabram. Uh, Deanne
Leanne Hoare is from Leechville. I'm getting nods from everyone. I got the towns right. That's at least a good start. So we've got two Northern Victorian and a Southern New South Wales. Might as well start with Southern New South Wales and continue the theme there. Um, Rachel, how are things going on your dairy farm this year? Can't complain, Warwick. I think if anyone had the magic formula for getting all the planets to align where milk's expensive and commodities are cheap, we would have worked it out by now. But, <laughs> but it's good luck, Malcolm. We got our corn in early. It's up and running and um, we've renovated our loosen this year, so we're just um, waiting for rain, really, and it looks like we're going to get some. Yeah, well, there's some ominous-looking clouds even outside our window here today. Glenn, I might come to you then uh, at Kyabra, and you've got, you've got a bit of farming uh, around the place as well. Areas that had a lot of rain last year and a, a very different season this year. Can you talk us through sort of the last 12, 18 months on dairy? Um, oh, look, last year we had... Um, yeah, it was wet. Poor quality grass, poor quality feed, um, cows that yeah weren't working very well, and um, yeah, so our joining program was a bit of a disaster this year. So there is some um, something la- still continuing on from that. Like we've got cows that have yeah. carryovers. So so what does that mean? Yeah. Oh well, you've just got cows that you wouldn't have joined last year. You've carried them on for another three or four months, and then you've joined them on. The, the next round and so they're getting dried off now earlier than you'd anticipate um so i've got a really interesting text i might put this to you a really interesting text that i got earlier about you're talking about record prices farmers are getting you're not talking about profitability sometimes (laughs) how how hard was it even at record prices to keep farms profitable during the last sort of year and a half when things were really wet and you're trying to recover from floods um Look, it has been hard because, I mean, our um, feed bills are about $1.20 per kilo of milk solids dearer than what they were. Oh, so that's the term. Yeah, yeah. And like our insurance, I think it's nearly up. Um, I think our work cover this year went up by just over... Yeah, it's nearly 100%. Last year was about 80000 This year it's just short of 200000 Um So our insurance in the last three years has um, gone up by $0.16. Cents. Um, per kilo of milk solids. Our labour's up by about 40 cents per kilo of milk solids. So I love this. And when we're talking $10 a kilo of milk solids or $9 or whatever the dairy announcement on, on the day that's coming through, you're breaking it down in your mind. This is costing me more. This is costing more. This is costing more. And then you've got to work out where that break even is. Yeah. So yeah, 20% of our... Um, yeah, there's 20% extra in costs. So there's $2 um, straight off the top. So... $10 comparable to $8 three years ago. So, yeah, it's not fantastic. And I suppose we've got to build up our reserves again. So that's cash flow. Um, and you want to make sure you're um, getting the business in a better position moving forward. So, yeah, it all requires cash. We'll bring in Deanne now. Deanne Hoare there at uh, Leechville. You've seen it all, really, in, in Leechville, then, I imagine. An area that was built around a dairy processing factory that is long since gone, uh, probably almost a decade or so ago Absolutely. now as well. Um, how, uh, how is it dairying out in an area that was prime dairy country and probably now a bit more um, patchwork quilt, I suppose? That's exactly right. We can drive to town and we might pass one or two dairy farms before... Even 20 years ago, we would have uh, be 10 or 12 dairy farms on the way to town. So we've got a real fabric that's changed with how people manage their pastures and some of that's been brought about by water use. So, and in particular on our farm, we've actually had quite a good season. Uh, we've been able to harvest uh, good quality silage and hay, so that's worked well within our cut and carry system that, that we actually use. 
we actually have a, a barn system for our cows, so we bring 100% of our feed. And when did you make that switch to, to put the cows in the barn? So we started on a journey about five years ago, so the cows have almost completed five years wow. in that system for all adult cattle. And has that change been worth it for you on your uh, Yes, yeah. yeah. And I guess the reasons that brought about that change uh, have cemented why we've we've kept evolving and kept increasing uh, what we're doing. So we've been able to bring some young stock into the barn system so that uh, they're not exposed to weather. So the flow-on effect of that has been not only production but also reproduction. So we're actually seeing that our cows are now retaining their calves when we join them and we're getting an influx of numbers. Uh, so the flow-on effect of our barn has transitioned us into not being a seasonal herd. So that matches our cut and carry system yep. so we're so trying you can to keep the same amount of milk going yep. all year yep. round yep so we're everyday supply yeah so everyday supply means everyday carving so so it's funny how one bit of infrastructure yep. five years ago has That's changed right. you're yep. a different farmer now yes absolutely where we still farm uh essentially the same way but we do a lot of things that matches uh our barn system because we just know that the repercussions of not having a good spring and like um, Glenn said getting our corn in last year we had a terrible wet winter and the season didn't evolve for corn so then that's a big part of what we do after our spring harvest we know that we need to have an autumn harvest of maize so the transition in getting it in getting the timings right can have a huge impact fodder conservation so this is the touchy-feely question time but it's a nice place to finish when we're talking about the dairy industry what it's been through how it's changed how do you feel about being involved in this industry at the moment and its future well we love farming and that's that's actually a really important dynamic to what we do we love the way we do things the way our cows reward us um, so we see a future we've got our next generation, our son's transitioning into our business, he's 25 so we're in for the long haul and there's been hurdles in the past and there'll be hurdles in the future but that's exactly where we're heading, Rachel, staying dairy farmers. Rachel, is it a good time to be dairy? Is it a good time to be dairy? It's always a good time to be dairy in Warwick <laughs> Simi blood, it's like a disease <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel better about the future of the industry now than say even five years ago? Uh, I think that Deanne nailed it when she said there's always been hurdles, always have been, always will be, and that's the nature of the beast. And um, do, do you ever feel the, like you get to a stage where the hurdles feel smaller than yes, they used to? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I did. Yep. Oh, that, no, that's that's really interesting. Glenn, I might uh, even bring you in on on that as well. How do you feel about being a dairy farmer, particularly in northern Victoria? There are there's fewer dairy farmers, a lot less milk coming out of here at the moment, but. Things are, like this room today, feeling more positive than they used to. Um, look, I'm a generational um, person that's been in agriculture. Yep. I've probably been in um, dairying for probably the last 12, 14 years. So I suppose um, you've been brought up to be optimistic, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I suppose that's the main thing. But look, and it depends on my family. I've got probably two family members that are probably keen on ag. Um, one's still doing doing a last year of uni next year. Another one's, um, yeah, he's been out away from the farm and 28 and he's pretty keen on probably um, the cropping side of things rather than the animal side of things, which is good for the business. Um, so it's just, we'll just see what they're doing. But I'm always, 
probably got one 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 foot in the door and the other one out. So well, I've, I've got an exit strategy. <laughs> I love the, the no. That's that honesty is awesome to hear, and I can see the nodding going. Yeah, um, Glenn. Rachel, Deanne, thank you so much for coming and joining us. And I'll let you turn around, really, because it's almost AGM time. But thank you for joining us on the country out there. We better get to livestock markets, uh, given I'm fast running out of time in the program. Uh, Let's go there now. We'll start today at Wodonga and Leanne Dax. In today's market, at Wodonga numbers surged to 1,790, accompanied by a notable uptick in stock quality. Queensland feeder buyers took the lead, sparking robust bidding for heavy, well-finished steers, ultimately fetching a top price of 290 cents. Medium-weight feeder steers experienced a substantial jump of 45 cents, reaching an impressive 277 cents. Domestic processors displayed... Strong competition to secure trade cattle, prompting them to assert themselves more aggressively against feedlots. Trade steers and heifers improved 15 to 35 cents and ranging from 210 to 278. Veal encountered heightened competition, resulting in a price lift of 15 cents. Bullocks and heavy steers, they experienced a significant 20 cent increase with competition intensifying as the sale progressed. Prices for these categories ranged from 230 to 255. Cows also saw an upward trend of 10 to 20 cents. Heavy cows commanded prices ranging from $2 to 232. This has been Leanne Dax for MLA. Thanks Leanne. Let's go to Ballarat Lambs now and Shiona Lamb. Good afternoon. Lamb supply remained similar to a week ago with 45,500 drawn for. Quality was mostly very good with a small, smaller portion of the yarding ranging from plain to good. All the usual buying group were present in a market that opened firm to a week ago and then gained intensity as the sale progressed. Light lambs to the trade sold to five better. Store lambs were four to seven dearer. Well-covered medium and heavy trade lambs were in high demand and gained to $12 a head. Heavy export lambs were in limited supply, causing bidding to intensify, with lambs over 26 kilos selling $12 to $18 a head stronger. Lambs back to the paddock made $20 to $100 a head for the lighter weights and $84 to $111 for the lambs over 18 kilos. Light lambs to the trade to suit MK orders sold $41 to $96 a head. Trade lambs 18 to 22 sold 85 to 129. 22 to 26 kilo lambs sold 108 to 163 dollars a head, with a wide range of 490 to 550 cents a kilo carcass weight. There are still two agents to sell lambs and 15,000 sheep to be sold. This is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. Lucky last for today is the Shepherd and Cattle Market Report. Here's Nicole Varley. Good afternoon. Well, the numbers jumped, as too did the prices across nearly all grades of cattle here at Shepparton. We had 1,110 exports of that 490 were cows and another 490 were trade cattle. The biggest shaker and mover of the day were the yearling steers, 30 to 40 cents dearer. Feedlotters and restockers and processors all competing for cattle that hit the weight target, consequently pushing the prices higher. There was a line of Simmental Cross Limousin calves. They topped the sale at 302. Yearling steers made from 208 to 270. Not many yearling heifers about, with several going to the feedlotters. Medium and heavy heifers, 195 to 253 cents. They were 10 cents better. 
The quality of the export lineup was vastly improved. Numerous pens of heavy C3C4 Bullocks were offered, along with significant numbers of Frisian steers that also carried a lot of weight and condition. Prices there for the heavy Bullocks rose by 12 cents. 500-600 kilo C3C4 steers were 212 to 269, 600 kilo plus Bullocks to 242. This is Nicole Valley from Shepparton. Thank you very much for that, Nicole. It's been great here, actually, as I look up all the board members of Dairy Australia are going on stage, so we're about to get into the nuts and bolts of the AGM. If anything gets fiery, I'm sure I'll bring it to you tomorrow on the Country Hour there. We'll be back in studio, though, with heap more to talk about from around Australia. And I thought I'd figure the last comment would be from the text line today from Dan, who says, gee, was, we've come a long way from a dollar a litre milk. Too right, Dan. Thanks for joining us today. Talk to you tomorrow.